You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey everybody, welcome to Online Calvary, and we are so glad that you are joining us. Let me just say happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, and I know that Mother's Day in quarantine is everything that you were dreaming about, just surrounded by your loved ones, surrounded by hundreds of rolls of toilet paper. This is what you were hoping for. Anyway, I know that however you're celebrating Mother's Day, we are so glad that you are allowing us to be part of your Mother's Day celebration today. So in honor of moms, I wanna tell you this story about my wife. It was about eight years ago when my wife was pregnant with my youngest daughter, Olivia. We were at Disney World, it was our last day at Disney World, and we were staying um, at one of the kind of outlying uh, Disney properties. And they have this, right outside of Epcot, there's this little lake and there's a bunch of hotels right around it. And there you can rent these Surrey bikes. And if you're familiar with what a Surrey bike is, they're, you know, they're the bikes that usually have four places to sit and then everybody pedals. It's like this little car looking thing, but everybody pedals through. And, and so we, the, my daughter Mia had been asking for us to rent these uh, all week. And she was probably about five, Xander was two, and Livy was still yet to um, be born. And so uh, we decided that, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna rent the bike on the last day. And we put the two kids in front because they weren't tall enough to pedal. And so my wife and I were pedaling. And so the way it works, if you've been around that little lake, is that, you know, there's kind of like a hill when you go up and then you go across uh, this little bridge, then you go down, you pick up some momentum. And so we get to that first hill and, uh, you know, my kids are like, dad, go faster, go faster. And I'm, and I'm saying like, my legs are on fire and we, we make it up that, that first time. And then, uh, we're, you know, you pick up the momentum and then there's this really steep hill and we, we kind of both pedal as hard as we can. We make it. And then the kids are like, one more time, one more time. And, uh, and so I, I say, no, my wife's like, well, maybe cause we're going home. So anyway, we go. And, uh, we get to that first hill again. And my wife says, Bob, I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant. I just, I can't pedal anymore. I'm so tired. So I make it up that first hill onto the bridge uh, by myself. And, and, and I finally make it, which is fine. We make it through. We go down the hill. We pick up the momentum. And then we're just, now we're cruising. We're doing very well. We get up to that second hill, which is the really steep one. And my wife says, I just, I can't pedal, uh, but I'll, I'll get off and I'll walk up the hill. And, and, uh, and so, and I'm, and I'm thinking like, oh honey, you're pregnant. And I'm like, you know what, get off. And uh, so she gets off and starts pedaling. I get about halfway up the hill and my legs just give out. And, and now my, instead of pedaling forward, now I'm starting to pedal backwards and it's starting, it, it now, and, and the whole bike is starting to go backwards and, and we're in for something, a different kind of ride. When all of a sudden, and, I, and it's even hard to describe the feeling, I get this burst of energy. And I just, and I, I, I once again, I don't know if it's because you don't skip leg day or whatever it is, but I just explode with energy. And and I'm just now, I'm, I'm exploding to the top of the hill. 
And then I turn around to tell my wife, did you, can you believe that? Did you see what happened? And I look and I see that it's my, my seven month pregnant wife pushing the bike up the hill. And um, now I wasn't a big fan of the, 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 her pushing up the hill, right? But I, I see it. And, and what I wanted to say was, honey, you stop. Because instead what I said was, keep pushing. And so I finally get to the top. And right as I get to the top, there's this family of four, mom, dad, and two blonde girls riding their little bike. And then, and I, and I hear the one girl going, mommy, why's the mean man make his pregnant wife push his wife, th them up the hill? And I'm like, don't you even think about judging me. Anyway, it's an awkward moment for sure. And that picture, listen, that picture of my pregnant wife pushing us up the hill has been cemented into my brain about what motherhood looks like. Because being a dad, listen, being a dad has its own challenges, but being a mom is a completely different animal. And, and, I, and I'm like the backup parent, and, and, and uh, I know that. My wife knows that. My kids know that. Sometimes I'll, I'll let my kids, do, uh, tell my kids it's okay to do something, and they'll say, all right, but I'm just going to go ahead and check with mom just in case. And, and, I, and I'm just so, I'm so offended by that. I'm like, hey, listen, I'm an authority figure here too, bro. And, and, and they're like, yeah, we know, dad. Mom said we should encourage you when you, when you think, say things like that. And so what I want to do today is I want to honor moms, and I want to spend some time in our teaching looking at uh, what I call the mother's of Jesus. Now, now you might be thinking, I'm pretty sure Jesus only had one mom, and that's Mary, and, and that's true. But in the family tree of Jesus, in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there are four other women that are included in his family tree. Now, this is very significant because at this time in this culture, women weren't included in genealogies. They weren't included in, in family trees, and this was so significant that it was included in the Gospel of Matthew because once again, what the Bible was doing was elevating the status of women, but also it was a message that God was sending to us because if we're being honest, the women that are included in this family tree weren't exactly the picture of all that is wholesome and good in the world. Uh, these were women who had a past. These were women, some who were shunned by society, women who made mistakes, but also women who were changed by the grace and power of God. And so for me, I can tell you that this is such a meaningful passage in my life. And, and it's a passage that most people skip over because they just see a list of names. And I'm like, well, let's just kind of get to the story. But it's so much deeper than that. And so this list of names, I believe, has a message for us about God's grace and about his ability to transform a human life. And so we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Woman number one. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Heshon. Heshon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Ruth. And that's the second one. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of 
Uriah. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, we, we've named them. We've named Tamar and, and Rahab and Ruth and her who had been the wife of Uriah. That sounds mysterious. We'll talk about that. But let's talk about mother number one, and that is Tamar. And if you're a note taker, Tamar is the curse who became a blessing. Now, the first woman on this list is an immoral woman named Tamar, and her story is worthy of a daytime soap opera because it has all the elements, right? There's, uh, there's, there's death, and then there's uh, an affair, and then there's even incest thrown in, and, uh, and, and, and the, the story is found in Genesis chapter 38, and here, let me just give you a brief synopsis of it. Judah is the son of Jacob, the fourth son of Jacob, and he has three sons. He has a son named Ur, a son named Onan, and a son named Shelah. And apparently you name your son Shelah because you were expecting a girl. Anyway, so Tamar marries Ur, and, but he dies. And according to Jewish custom, which we don't have time to talk about, but it's called the, the uh, law of the Leverite marriage, uh, Onan then marries her because the, the son died. And basically the way it would work is, is that the first child that they would have would be counted as the son of Ur, who was the first husband of Tamar, and that way it would carry on the family name. But he didn't want to carry on the family name, and so then he dies. Now, Judah is looking on and saying, I have three sons. Both were married to the same woman. Both died after marrying that woman, and I see the problem here that there is a common denominator because Tamar is 0 for 2 with my kids. And so she sends Tamar home to wait for Sheila to be old enough to marry. Now, a couple of things you need to know just to kind of give you an idea about the story. We always tend to think that uh, people in the Bible were much older, uh, that it, when people are getting married in the Bible, we're talking about at the latest, they're like 16 years old. Uh, and once again, in that culture, people got married right after they hit puberty. And so uh, the other thing is, is that Sheila is probably about 11 or 12. And so Tamar is sent home and led to believe that she's just going to have to wait a year or two before uh, Sheila is old enough to marry her. But then she realizes, and more time goes by, that Judah is stalling on giving Sheila to, to Tamar as a husband. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. So I'm going to read you this passage from Genesis 38. It says, when Tamar was told your father-in-law, that's Judah, was on his way to Timnah, to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself in a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, hey, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll give you a young goat from the flock. And will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he says, well, what pledge should I give you? And here's her response. Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. That's like really specific. We'll talk about that in a second. And so she gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. Now, why does she ask? Which by the way, I mean, this is an insane story, right? And, but 
Why does she ask for the staff, the cord, and the steel? This is like saying in that culture, hey, I would like your driver's license, social security, and a major credit card. The staff was his position. The seal was his identity. Now, why did she ask for this? Because she, being wise, knew what was going to happen next. Let me read you the next passage. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, let her out and let her and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you can recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. You see, listen, this situation would have made her a, a notorious woman in Israel forever. And God was able to turn something horrible and turn it into a literal blessing. Later in the book of Ruth, her name becomes a blessing. In fact, look what it says in Ruth chapter four. It says, through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. What's God showing us here? That he has the ability to turn a messy family situation into a blessing because there are no squeaky clean families. I mean, who would have thought that the name of the girl who slept with her father-in-law would now become the, the name of the blessing for women having kids? Listen, every person has things that they aren't proud of, and yet God has the ability to turn our weaknesses into strengths and past failures into future blessings. What does that mean for us? It means that we're all a work in progress. And if that's really the case, then what we need to do is be a little more gracious with each other. Listen, since this quarantine began, I've had this consistent prayer that I pray over my family when we pray together. And, and it's that we would be gracious with each other. Because we all have these moments where we get frustrated we have, and we want things to go back to normal. There's stuff that we want to do that we can't do. And then there's stuff that other people do that kind of start to rub us the wrong way. But because we don't see them as much, it doesn't rub us the wrong way at least. And now it's just reached kind of this fever pitch. And listen, we all have needs and wants and, and we're stuck at home. Listen, you and I have the ability to turn this messy situation into a blessing. But it takes the ability to see beyond this circumstance and into the preferred future that God has for us. This season isn't forever. This is our moment. It's our moment to trust that God hasn't forgotten you, hasn't forgotten me, hasn't forgotten us. This is our moment to make an investment into the future that he's creating for us. Well, that's woman number one. Woman number two, we see her in verse five. Her name is Rahab. Rahab, if you're a note taker, is the one who turned failure into faith. Now, Rahab was not a model citizen. She was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho. Now, you have to understand that in, in uh, the Hebrew language, uh, harlot could also mean innkeeper. So it's possible that she was uh, an innkeeper that had, you know, she's running a hotel that had different kinds of activities going on in the evening. But her story changes when she's faced with a choice to believe that she's heard about God, which she had. She heard the stories of the children of Israel on their way to the promised land or ignore that 
and turn away God's ambassadors who had come to her house for shelter. And listen, this is a woman who had a shady past, but she makes a decision. And now her name is synonymous with faith. Joshua chapter two, which is where we find her story. Listen to what it says. It says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And so when they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, the, the men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went, went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you might overtake them. And she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them with stalks of flax, which she laid in order on the roof. Listen, Rahab's life begins to change when she makes a choice. Stay out of it or get involved in what God is doing. Listen, there's two ways that you can live your life. You can, you can watch life happen to you or you can jump in and be part of the work that God is doing. And you may not realize it, but God can use anything in your life as long as you're open. Rahab, what does she have? She had a home and that was the game changer in her life. And we make a lot, a lot of times we make all these excuses as to why God can't use us and things can't change. Listen, God has different plans. About three years ago, maybe, yeah, about three years ago, maybe a touch more, um, I bought tickets for my two oldest kids to come with me to go see, to go see Coldplay at uh, Hard Rock Stadium. And uh, my son wasn't sure, he was about seven at the time, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to go. I mean, he wanted to go, but he found out the show was at 8 p.m. And he's like, I don't know. Am I going to, you know, now here's the thing you got to understand. And he says to me, he says, Dad, I, I want to go, but I don't think I can. The concert is late. And you know what happens when I stay up too late? I go negative. Now, you got to understand something about Xander. Xander is the happiest, uh, most positive kid in the world until it gets late. And when it gets too late, he just has, there's just this switch and he goes negative. And one night we were going to watch this show together as a family and uh, the kids were taking a long time to get ready for bed. And I'm like, come on, man, let's do this. And he's like, it's never going to work out. I'm never going to see the show because I'm never ready on time. I shouldn't even be part of this family. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, dude, throttle it back. And uh, I mean, come on, just, you're not, be, don't be negative, be positive. He's like, okay, dad, I'm positive things aren't gonna work out. And, and, and so now he, he starts to cry as he's telling me this. And he's like, dad, Coldplay is my favorite band. And I'm not gonna be able to see them because I'm gonna go negative. And, and I told him that, I'm like, buddy, this show is eight months away. And you're gonna be eight by the time it happens. Why don't you make a decision? to let God work in your life. And he's like, all right, dad, I'm gonna trust that, that it's gonna get better. And um, he agreed and, and the result was amazing. Let me have you check this out. And I will try to fix you. Thank you, everybody. Listen, that night was one of the best nights 
of our lives. And it almost didn't happen. You know why? Because of something that we do to ourselves. We make excuses of why we can't be used by God. And listen, oh yeah, God works in other people's lives, but not ours. Let me tell you something. Um, God wants to work in your life and not simply because it's you. You know, there, there's this passage in the book of James about Elijah, who was a prophet and that was used so mightily of God. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Let, let me tell you something about that. Elijah was not the reason that it stopped raining and Elijah was not the reason that it started raining. God was the one that was doing the work. And, and too many people just don't believe. They don't believe God for greater things because they think it's about them. It's not about you. God wants to work in your life because he loves you. Well, I don't understand why God loves me. Well, I don't understand that either. People generally are unimpressive. But the fact remains that you are the object of his love. So receive it and ask like you're the object of his love. You know, and you know this to be the case. You ever buy a, a birthday present or a Christmas present for people who just won't receive the gift? Like, oh, you spent too much. Oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, this isn't right. There's starving people in the world. It's like, hey, you shut up and take the gift, right? And just accept the gift graciously. Somebody loves you and wants to express their love to you. So stop making this harder than it is. Listen, if you want God to work in your life, that's the first step. Acknowledge that God wants to work in you and then look for him at work and jump in. Mother number three, Ruth. If you're a note taker, Ruth is the outcast who became an insider. Here's what you have to understand about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. That is, she is from the area of Moab. Moab in that time, uh, probably, you know, a little 1100 BC, 1200 BC, um, that was, Moab was the hood. And I've been to Moab personally, and it's still the hood. Uh, nothing has changed. In, in Psalm 108, there's this passage that I find kind of funny that says this, Moab is my wash pot. That, that's a very nice way of saying Moab is my toilet bowl. And, and, and you might think like, so what, you know, in, in the Hebrew culture, your lineage was everything. And if, if you're saying like, you're the Messiah, you've got to prove it. Like, I'm a descendant of King David. Well, prove that you're a descendant of King David. So adding this woman into the genealogy of Jesus is to go out of your way to say that this Messiah, Jesus, is someone who includes outsiders. The reason that Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem to be counted in the census is because of Ruth and her husband, Boaz. Ruth is in the family tree because she chose to believe when there was no reason to believe. Her sister-in-law had gone back to be with her family and Naomi, her mother-in-law, told her to leave, told Ruth to leave, to go start a new life and Ruth decided to stay. In Ruth chapter one, verses 16 and 17, it says, but Ruth said, this is what she says to her mother-in-law, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you 
and me. I read this, even though it's not a wedding passage, I read this passage at every wedding I officiate because it encapsulates the commitment that a man and a woman make to each other. And she's in the genealogy of Jesus because she defines what it means to trust God and be faithful and resolute when life has not given you one reason to believe. Sometimes for our lives to change, here's what it takes. It takes one good decision and then sticking with it. You know, the thing about life is that life doesn't tell us, you know, five yards until the end zone, your marriage will be better if you stick it out for three more months. You're going to have a better husband by Memorial Day. And, and it, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Our job, listen, make the right choice and stick with it. And you're going to see that God does the thing that he promised to do. Last one, mother number four is her who had been the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. And she was the unwise who became wise. I want, to, I want to think about, for a second, real wisdom versus kind of pithy sayings, right, that get tossed around as wisdom. Here's a couple. Like, here's, here's a saying. Man, I slept like a baby. The person who made up that statement is an idiot because that person has never been around kids. And, and, it, and the reality is to sleep like a baby means you don't sleep much. And if you don't believe that, borrow a baby for a weekend and test my theory. How about this? This is another saying that we have. You can't have your cake and eat it too. I've never understood that because every time I've bought a cake, I have eaten it. Most of the cake I've eaten. Anyway, um, that, how about this one? Speaking of cake, it's a piece of cake. I mean, that's supposed to mean that something, how'd that, how'd that go? Oh, it was a piece of cake. Like it was easy. Have you ever tried to bake a piece of cake? Listen, baking a cake is not easy. I tried to make a cake once and I almost burned down my house. The saying should be, if you're smart enough to follow the directions on the side of a cake and bake one, it should be easy for you. And, uh, and how about this? This is one I've never understood, 86. Hey, do you want onions on that? No, 86 onions. Now, that doesn't even make sense. There is even a better way to say that. Hey, would you like onions? No, zero onions. How do you know that? Because even when you cut an onion, it is in the shape of a zero. Anyway, now, the amazing thing about the Bible is that the Bible has stood the test of time, and, and it is just as relevant as it was when it was written. We look at a book like Proverbs, and we'd agree that it's a place to get tons of wisdom. Now, here's why I bring this up. Solomon wrote down the Proverbs, but he didn't come up with all of them. In Proverbs 31, verse 1, here's what the Bible says. Um, Solomon writes, says, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Now, Lemuel is a, is a Hebrew name. Uh, it, it's a nickname that means dedicated to God. It, it was a pet name that um, Bathsheba had for her son Solomon. And you know what Proverbs 31 is all about? The kind of woman to look for in a wife. The, the kind of woman that women aspire to be. And, and so if that's the case, why does... Matthew not even write her name. In, in, in verse 6, it says, David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. The reason is, is because her story is so scandalous. Now, you know how this works because your kids do something wrong and then, you, you, you know, dad gets home or mom gets home and says, honey, look what your son has done. You don't even say the name. Or someone aggravates you and you say, you know, I saw what's his name today. And that was, you know, it's just what we do. Now, her name is Bathsheba. 
And her story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. She has an affair with King David. King David has Bathsheba's husband killed. And everyone found out about it. And there she is, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon in the genealogy of Jesus. Now think about this. The woman who committed adultery becomes the teacher for Jews and Christians for now thousands of years on what to look for in a wife. And I mean, is this the cast of characters that you'd pick for your family tree? And I, I doubt it. It, it. It's not who you'd pick. It's not who I'd pick. And there's a bunch of great women uh, throughout the Bible and, and, and Jewish history who aren't mentioned. You see, we want people like us. We want people who, you know, without drama, strange career choices, but God in sending his son Jesus into the world could have placed his son in any family tree. And he chose this one. Now, why is that? Let me explain it this way. I have an older brother. And when my brother, uh, Billy, was growing up, he had this shelf um, in his room of all the trophies that he had won. Now, you got to understand something about my brother. My, bro my brother was one of these people that excelled at everything, uh, whether it was uh, playing hockey, photography, drums, pretty much every activity that he got involved in growing up, he had several trophies to show for it. Now, I would sit in his room when he wasn't there, and I would just stare at these trophies, and I would think, someday I'm going to win a trophy. And my room was very different. There were no trophies. I was kind of the screw-up of my family, and uh, I, I was the one who took an extra year to graduate high school, and I remember when I finally graduated a year late, and my mom came into my room on the day of graduation, and uh, she sat down uh, on my bed as I was getting ready, and she put her hand on my shoulder, and I thought she was going to, like, you know, share, like, some wisdom with me, and she just said, it's about time, and uh, that was it, and then got up and walked out. It was this strange moment. And now, but I, I learned something. 27 years ago, I came to know Jesus. And I, and I realized something that I had spent so much time in my life seeking after trophies. And I didn't realize that when I came to know Jesus, that I became a trophy, that I became a trophy of God's grace. And listen, some times a person seeks after things, not knowing that they've kind of become the thing that they're seeking. When a person comes to know Jesus, they have now become the thing that God displays to the world to say, I can do a great deal working with very little. And here's the cool thing too, is that if you're a person who's come to know Jesus, then you are a trophy as well. And we stand as these monuments of God's grace that people can look at us and think, I mean, if God can do something with them, then he can do something with me. And then people's lives transform. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that we can be a trophy of your grace. And we pray that even for those that are listening, that maybe haven't given their lives to you, that this would be the moment for them to just call out to you and just say, Jesus, forgive me. I need you. Be my savior today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church wanna help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, 
All you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.